I got really good at being manipulative. I knew how to get free drugs out of men. And it was like a weapon. And it just continued in all of my using and got worse and progressed. And there was just tissues and tissues of blood and needles and citric and dishes, and just bloody water cups. And I remember just sitting there thinking, oh, my dear, but not leaving because I couldn't leave. But then there's the bigger picture stuff, right? The important bit. You know, I have that freedom in my heart. I have an amazing relationship with my family now, with all of them. I've made amends to all of them. Hello and welcome to 12 Steps and 12 Questions. My name is Silvio and I'm an addict. This pod is full of personal and inspirational stories of recovery from addiction. And in every episode, I'll ask each guest the same 12 questions about their life addiction and recovery. Quick warning, there will be some graphic descriptions and a healthy amount of swearing. For this episode, please welcome Dee. Hi Dee, thank you so much for coming. I'm so glad that you're here, I'm so chuffed. Would you like to introduce yourself quickly, please, for this episode of 12 Steps and 12 Questions? Thanks, Sylvia. Yeah, lovely to be here. I'm Dee, I'm an addict. Um, I'm from, from London, live in London. I'm 36 years old and I've been in recovery this March. I will be coming up to four years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Four years. That's amazing. Touch wood. Touch wood indeed. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's get straight to question one, which is, did you have any adverse childhood experiences? Hmm, I mean, it, I think the more I've kind of got experience around this area and around childhood, you know, looking at those big T's and little T's, like traumas, right? Yeah. And I think there's, you know, my parents got divorced when I was eight. And I think that that actually had quite a big impact on me as a mm. kid. Um, although, you know, I, I guess I didn't really identify that until I was in recovery, that it was having that level of impact. Sure. Um, and there was a series, you know, my mum my ended up with a, a series of boyfriends quite quickly mm. after they broke up, one of mm. whom was domestically violent and abusive in the house when we were there. And we, To your mother? To my mother. When you were there? Yeah. Mm. Um, so, yeah, and we witnessed, me and my brother both witnessed her being, you know, dragged out down two flights of stairs and lots of horrible things that happened to her after that and the police coming around being right. on our doorstep so mm. it was all quite heavy but I guess again it's that stuff I think that you know I'm glad you're asking about childhood really because it's, it's something that we can kind of easily skirt over and not look at and you know especially being in recovery it's very much about looking at, at my part and I needed to have that level of accountability in order to be able to recover but to be able to understand who I am and mm. why I ended up this way, you have to kind of delve back into that past, mm. that childhood stuff. Um, and yeah, and you know, I think when you are that age, you're really impressionable, but you don't have that maturity. You don't have, I guess, that um, yeah, emotional maturity in order to be able to articulate what's actually going on for you. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, so you feel a lot of stuff, but I think you um, suppress that stuff. And I think a lot of that then spilled out into my addiction there yeah. afterwards. Yeah. Mm. Um, How old were you then? So that was, that was eight, but probably between eight and 10. And then, yeah, by the time I was 11, my mum, you know, she's still with this man now, uh, who's my stepdad. Oh. Um, but he had a very different style of parenting and he moved in very quickly. Um, and 
yeah, I have a great relationship with him today, but it wasn't always that way. And um, and my mum became pretty inaccessible to us, you know, and um, and I think that that was quite tough. My brother became very introverted. Um, he is from military background, so he was quite a tough character. My stepdad, my stepdad yeah. He's quite a tough character. He was one of these people that, you know, he walked into a room and he created tension. And I think there's that kind of like that jealousy of feeling like you've stolen my parent. Yeah. I think some of that stuff was going on in the background, though I didn't, again, understand how to articulate that. Um, my brother became very, very introverted, quite OCD in the way that his coping strategy was. I became very people-pleasing. Um, and then as I got older... I just wanted to remove myself from the situation. I just wanted to get away. And that was what kind of led into addiction of me going out as much as I can, being out of the house as much as I can. I didn't feel that sense of belonging. I didn't feel like that place of safety um, from my stepdad's presence a lot of the time. Yeah. So that was quite hard. And then at the age of 15, I ended up with um, with glandular fever. So I I just wasn't, I just was quite an unwell child and like I just and I guess again it's more of this stuff this knowledge that's built up now through self-development being in recovery and listening to endless podcasts and reading endless books on self-development and trying to understand psychology better and understand myself better um but you know uh, Gabo Mate is actually one of those people that I lean on quite a lot and I've, I've listened to a lot of those coping strategies but those autoimmune diseases that are really prevalent in women and I develop them and I think that that again always comes back to that repression of not being able to truly be able to express how you're feeling. Love Gabo Mate I've got to say Gabo if you're listening uh, we love you here at this yes. podcast that's for sure. <laughs> so if I think about my own experience there was a lot of yelling in my household and a lot of drama. Always, It was quite loud. It was always someone crying or yelling or whatever. Not at all times, but a lot of the time. And that made me, that really affected me. It affected me deeply. And I remember in those days, I was um, not knowing where to go or how to get away from this because I was like, what, six or eight or something like that, right? And was it similar for you? Yeah, I mean, I vividly remember on a number of occasions, and I must have been, what, 11 or something, 10 or 11, mm. of running to my bedroom, packing my packing my rucksack, and it, just with these, you know, with my teddy bear and like, you know, a book and just some silly ornaments that were off my shelf and leaving and leaving the house and being like, right, that's it, I'm leaving, I'm never coming back here ever again. And then, you know, like three hours have gone by, and then I'm thinking, oh, God, I'm going to get in so much trouble. Uh, I'm hungry now, and, yeah, oh, it's probably going to get dark, so where am I going to sleep? I haven't thought this through. And going back home, but going back home, and then it not really being noticed that I've left at all anyway. Yeah. And, uh, and then being like, oh, this is it. And just being stuck in that place of not wanting to be there, um, but not having a better alternative. Yeah. And I think that that was my experience a lot. And the other thing that I remember a lot of doing was being at the top of the staircase and listening to hear if my stepdad was in the house or not before I came down the stairs. And if he wasn't, I'd be able to come down in that, oh, I can just be myself. Yeah. And if he was, it was like, I have to be on guard. Yeah. 
Yeah. I don't, it's unpredictable. The environment was unpredictable. My mum was unpredictable as a result of my stepdad. It just wasn't, it wasn't comfortable a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And here's that, um, here's that cycle, isn't it? Is it, it? You know, when you, tension, worry, tightness, and release. Mm-hmm. Tension, worry, and relief. And that is something that's a, a cycle that we know quite well as, as addicts, I think, later on. Yeah. 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 Definitely that. Mm, mm. Yeah. I was a sickly child as well. So you had, you said glandular fever. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know a lot about it and perhaps the listeners don't do either. So. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a virus. And um, I, yeah, I think, I actually think quite a few people get it. It's also known as the kissing disease as well. Mm. So, <laughs> a lot it's of, better I, than glandular fever. <laughs> uh, so I think a, a lot of, a lot of teenagers end up getting it. So at 15, I, I ended up with glandular fever and, you know, I'll kind of speak more about it, but it, I ended up, that progressed. My immune system got really, really battered. And some people get it quite mildly. I got it really quite severely. Um, it basically means your immune system kind of attacks itself and you are seriously exhausted all of the time. Mm. Um, and then mine progressed. I ended up with repeated tonsillitis literally month on month until my throat closed up. And they were like, right, we need to get rid of your tonsils. I had that. Um, so I had the tonsillectomy and then I think two years following the tonsillectomy, um, I ended up with ME. So my immune system never quite recovered, but it was just like, you know, when you get cold after cold and illness after illness and it just, I never seemed to be in a a place of good health, really consistent good health. Yeah. 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 Which brings us slowly but surely to question two, which is the moment you first got hooked what did the fun times what did that look like so we're moving out of the glandular fever time or how old were you then 15 16 yeah and at some point alcohol and or drugs were introduced into your life and you thought oh i'm loving this what did that look like how did that progress i think the glandular fever was quite a, a kind of catalyst actually in that um you know i mean from a young age i was going out and so I only saw my dad at the week, like every other weekend, um, after our parents broke up. But he'd always have, you know, pound notes in his wallet. He'd, he always had cash on him, and I'd sneak down and steal that, and I'd steal sweets from him. And he'd always have a massive booze counter, and I'd go and steal that and bring that into school as well. Pour it into Schweppes bottles and bring it into school. And, right. You know, so. Um, I, I was doing all these, I guess, naughty behaviours, addict behaviours, really, um, as I know today. And I was doing that from quite early on, early on as a teenager. And then drinking, you know, I got, I just couldn't keep up with my friends. My friends were going out and they were partying or they were going to the skate park or, you know, they had birthday parties and they'd all be drinking. And once I got glandular fever, I just couldn't. I couldn't drink like they could. I just wanted to go to sleep. As soon as I had a drink, I wanted to go to sleep, basically. Um, and then somebody introduced me to Coke at the age of 15. And I, I I remember it now. And I sniffed that line. And it was just like, wow. It was like the lights came on. Like, I could keep up with my peers. I could go out. I could dance the night away. I could drink alcohol successfully. And I could keep drinking through the night. Um, and 
yeah and and then I'd go home and I'd have a great time and it was fun and I felt exhilarated it was like it it was like somebody turned the lights on in me um I was somebody that always struggled with a lot of confidence um growing up and it just gave me this ability to feel like I had this invincible jacket on and I could go out and I could make friends with anybody and I wouldn't be worried about anything and I felt like I could do stuff like I didn't even ever feel really very capable as a child like intellectually I didn't feel like I was that I was very bright my brother was seriously bright and I never felt like I was that bright um I had to do extra French extra English extra maths Cumon maths every morning 200 questions that I had to answer I just, like I was in every extra class you could possibly think of and um so I didn't have great self-worth and this just made me feel like I did. And it was awesome. Um, 15 is really young for cocaine. Yeah. Now, I mean, at the time, I guess I didn't think because all my peers were doing it. And I think it was just before they'd started really cracking down on the, um, you know, going into pubs and needing ID. Uh, you know, I, I remember I used to, um, I used to edit. P- people would bring their passport to me in school and I would scan it and I would edit that passport copy in paint. <laughs> <laughs> in paint. So for anyone Sorry under the that. age of 30, very quickly, <laughs> Microsoft, I think, paint was a uh, sort of under Windows 98 or something like that. It was a, well, a proto Photoshop yeah. program, I suppose. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. So Pulled that could... one back from the dead. Yeah. Thought. So I would edit, yeah, exactly. I'd edit people's passports to make it in line with a different age group, get a fiver for it. So it's quite innovative. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah. And then I would go off and that was all I needed to get into to bars and clubs. So that was fine for me. And so I think we just went out and there was this one place I was living in Winchester at the time. There was this one bar that everybody went to as a club and I had VIP access, of course I did, because I went there, I was such a frequent drinker of going there, um, and knew all the bar staff, knew the manager, you know, just that social butterfly that you become, and you think you're the big I am, don't you? Probably a deeply irritating person, actually, now I'm looking back at <laughs> <laughs> um, But yeah, like now I look at 15-year-olds and I think, you are a child. Yeah. Like, and your brain isn't fully developed at all yet. And like now we've got all this information about what drugs and alcohol do to us. And like, it's actually terrifying that I was sniffing prolific amounts of coke, drinking really heavily because you can hand in hand and the two go hand in hand. So the minute that I pick up a drink, then I wanted a line. And if I had a line, I immediately wanted a drink. Mm. You know, it just went hand in hand and it opened the doors to everything else. So then I'm smoking weed and then I'm going out and I'm going raving and, you know, I'm taking pills, I'm taking MD, I'm then taking Ket at the end of the night, I'm taking Valleys at the end of the night, any benzo group I am get my hands on to come down. Um, and so the cycle continues and I've got all these different groups as well by this point, you know. I've got my school group, which I just drink with. Yeah, that's acceptable there, but nothing else is. Acceptable, uh, quote unquote, because you were 16 or something. Yeah, yeah, because I'm 16 mm. or, you know, I'm in that kind of, I'm talking now probably around that that, that 15 to 18 bracket. Mm. Oh, yeah, going out, so that's fine. Drinking's fine. And then I've got those that I use Coke with. And then I've got my raving friends and, yeah, they 
basically get stoned a lot of the time and then they go to these big raves or festivals and there was a lot of fun in this mm. and I didn't mix any of my groups I was really wise I kept them all apart mm. yeah mm. and I could just be whoever I wanted to be mm. within each social circle um and no and I was never accountable to anybody so nobody knew that I was actually going from one group one night to the next group another night and then another uh, group another night nobody could see the amount I'm drinking or using on a week on week basis so in other words the people you went out with on a Friday or regularly on a Friday, they didn't know about the Thursday group and the Saturday group and so on. And they just think, oh, she's just drinking and using with us on Fridays and otherwise she's all right. But that wasn't your reality. Mm-hmm. It's exactly that. Yeah. Um, so nobody nobody knew. Only I knew. And I was having fun. Mm. You know, back to your, your earlier point. Yeah. yeah. What were the fun times? Yeah. I was having fun. You were having I, a good I really time. thought I was having a good time. Yeah. And, I, I thought I'd found the secret to life, basically. <laughs> and I somehow still, you know, did my GCSEs and went to college and got through my A-levels and it was kind of all right. And I kind of did all right as well. And Yeah. Um, how how yeah. do you afford cocaine when you're 17? Mm, that's a really good question. <laughs> um. Yeah, I guess this is where those behaviours really start and started early of that manipulation. Um, you know, especially when you're moving through different social groups, I think that had a lot to do with it as well is, you know, people would be a lot more willing to offer you bits um, and free drugs essentially mm. when you're chopping and changing you're not with that same group mm, mm. being that person trying to scavenge and mm. get freebies all the yeah. time um but yeah men men is basically what mm. it boils down to and it's still even now even when you ask me that question i was like oh, you know like i literally i don't want to say it like it still brings yeah. up a lot of shame in me um but i got really good i got really good at being manipulative i mm. knew how to get free drugs out of men and um and it was like a weapon and it that just continued in all of my using and got worse and progressed mm. and progressed yeah yeah certainly at that age and i you know I, I i'd had a job since i was the age of 14 as well so you know i'd always worked and so i had that income and um you know my parents i think gave me an allowance as well so i had yeah, that yeah, and yeah. so you could buy an alibi pill here and there yeah you know and and pretend that oh, i usually don't manipulate to get drugs mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but then basically that's what funded 80 percent of your habit oh completely yeah or you know when i'd see my dad every other weekend then you know i'd steal some cash out of his wallet mm-hmm. which obviously started off with a fiver and then ended up being like oh well you know 60 quid oh take that he's mm. 200 in there he won't notice a few mm. notes go missing did he ever notice he's never said anything to me yeah um and i have no idea mm. yeah yeah i don't know yeah so here we are you're 15 to 18 as you said you, you you'd crack the code of life right you are getting high regularly with different groups of different people and you're quite able to do this without having a whole a whole lot of consequences, really, right? Question three is, what were your worst consequences? And finally, your rock bottom. How did it progress from that point where you had cracked the code of life? What happened then? Mm. So 
as one would feel if they're taking a lot of cocaine and smoking a lot of weed, you're going to be quite paranoid. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) It wasn't a great combination for me. My brain was on fire and I, yeah, I had serious anxiety. Um, You know, I think as well, if you have suddenly found this secret to life, you've been a very underconfident person, a very anxious person beforehand, then you've not dealt with any of that stuff because you haven't had language or knowledge around it. Mm. And actually, back then, we're really lucky now that mental health is like such an accessible topic. Um, But back then, you were considered... If, if somebody said you had mental health, you were considered a nut job. pretty potty. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a nut job. So there was a lot of shame attached to it. So, yeah. So I, um, yeah, I had bad mental health. <laughs> Definitely. And I had just masked it with this drug using. Yeah. And by the time I was at 18, um, I was having, you know, I'd watched one of my friends nearly die. He tripped out in, in front of me. Um and he would have died that night had I not dropped in and seen him, which was just coincidental. Now I would say mm. a god moment. Um, and from that, I just thought I was going to die continuously every time I used. Every time I used, because we were smoking a spliff together, so yeah, I then associated every time I smoked weed with um, that I was going to die. And then that progressed into any other drug I was using. And I mean, wouldn't you think at that point that like a normal person would go, right, two plus two equals four, so let's cut that out, but not me. I couldn't, and this is where it really shows the addict in me. I could not stop despite having had a pretty horrible consequence, which I think probably then resulted in PTSD from that and having this repeated cycle, there was repeated trauma that was playing out and ended up with these horrible, horrible panic attacks that then was so extreme that I literally couldn't even bear to be alone. Like, I, if I was on my own, I thought I was just going to die. So that was regardless of whether I was actually high or not. Um, then it was smoking cigarettes and I thought it was going to... It was just everything. It rippled into every aspect of my life. But I still couldn't stop taking drugs, which is just mad. Fascinating, really, because I have had panic attacks of that kind in my 20s and also my 30s, where you might just be sat by yourself or you're somewhere totally innocuous, a bus or something like that, and you have this type of anxiety, a panic attack, really, that makes you think you're going to die. You're on your last legs. This is it. It's all over. When you pour petrol on the flames, then on top of that, and you use drugs on top, and I know this from bitter, bitter, painful experience, it just accelerates it into total and utter madness. Mm. Absolutely. And that was absolutely my experience. Um, I mean, I went to uni and um, I remember it getting so severe. Like, So imagine this, going to university. You've got this raging addiction, but it's all right because I was doing an art degree. So... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know... (laughs) There's nothing like hiding your... I know this from experience. Nothing like hiding your addiction behind an arty facade. I made an art form out of it, if you don't mind the pun. (laughs) Nice pun. Um, Yeah, literally, that was exactly what it was. And it kind of just went hand in hand. And everybody else who was on an art degree was getting high. So, felt all right. Um, 
But yeah, there was this very, very extreme panic disorder that was going on behind the scenes that I didn't let people know about, um, except for then it became really apparent because I couldn't even get to sleep at night without um, having a shoe in between the doorway so that there was light coming into my room and so that the door wouldn't lock in case I needed somebody to come in and rescue me because mm. I thought I was going to die. Anyway, in the end, I went, as, I went to go and see, I went to see a counsellor as well, I saw the doctor and then the doctor said, hey, I think you should probably go see the university counsellor. So I went there, but didn't mention anything about the drugs. I just left that bit out because I kind of, you know, I knew drugs were bad and, you know, that fear of I might be kicked out of university and, don't, you know, that would bring shame on me. I don't want the family to find out that I'm doing this. You know, it was all very, it's a web of lies and deceit just everywhere with me trying to present this personality, this stage character that I want others to see me as. But actually, there's something very different going on internally. Um, and obviously... Do you know what? I can't even really remember this counsellor at all, but she obviously saw something out and sent me down to a drugs and alcohol substance misuse service. And I went there and I did that lovely acupuncture that they said, you know, sit there in a room, be zen. There was nothing zen about me. Like, that was uncomfortable. Sit here and be silent for 10 minutes and let me stick some pins in your ears. Okay, and then let's go and talk to a group, you know, doing all of that sort of stuff talking to somebody there and you know kind of nice to be able to talk about my drug use I suppose but I didn't really feel like I didn't I felt like I was in the wrong place it didn't feel like I was an addict um anyway they signposted me to a 12-step program said hey there's a meeting over here why don't you go to that meeting how old were you then so you at university you said so yeah so I must have been weren't tw 20 yeah 20 I went to my first meeting yeah and I walked into that room and I looked around and I was just like mm, well I'm a cocaine user and these guys are all smackheads I'm at university don't you know um I don't belong here I've got a car outside um some people are clucking and this just isn't for me and honestly like my ego was just so high yeah because of all of this outside stuff that I thought I had my internal condition was completely different my self-esteem is on the floor I'm exactly the same as all these people in the room I just couldn't see it I looked for every single difference rather than the similarities yeah I couldn't hear the message being carried none of it and I got in that car and I sniffed a line and I got on my way um and not long after that, my whole body clapped, and that was when I ended up with Emmy, right? And I had to defer that last year of uni. Um, so I think it was probably, yeah, maybe it was maybe it was a year after that, but I couldn't complete my final year of uni. Uh, my mum became a full-time carer. I couldn't even make it to the toilet on my own. I was sleeping pretty much round the clock. Mm -hmm. I was really seriously ill for a year. And my, I mean, my only thing was wanting to get better so that I could get back out and use more drugs. Not so I could get back to uni, not so I could like partake in normal life again. It was just like, I just want to get out so I can use more drugs. This isn't a normal way of thinking or behaving. And it just, you know, I, I, I see it now, right? The, the doctor's opinion really was the bit that came to life for me when I finally... The doctor's came, opinion in the book. In the big book, yeah, Alcoholics big book, Anonymous, yeah. right? Where it t talks about 
the illness that we suffer with, this mm. twofold, twofold illness of like, I, when I put one in me, I can't stop, right? Mm. I don't know what's going to happen to make me stop. Generally speaking, the things that make me stop are the fact that I run out of money or somebody locks me up somewhere, basically. They, or, or something, you know, like a boyfriend leaves me and it's the end of the world and I'm like, I will change, I will change, I promise this time it will be different. Um, but it never lasts. And the reason it never lasts is because I have a problem with the mind. Mm -hmm. And it tricks me, no matter what my consequences are, it tricks me into believing that somehow I'm going to have control over it, somehow it's going to be different this time. If we just slow this down here for a second. If I mean, to have a serious illness for a year, obviously that's a big, it's a life event, isn't it, in, 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 yeah. in many ways. And... It tells you something about yourself if your motivation to get out of this and to get better, right? It's not to return to university or anything like that, but so that you can go out and use again <laughs> and be okay. You know, associating going out and using as being as being the most you you can possibly be. Yeah, actually, yeah, when you put it like that, yeah. Mm -hmm. That was yeah, that was yeah. exactly it. Yeah. That was what I was familiar with, right? That yeah. was my identity. Mm. If you took the the drink and the cocaine away, I didn't I didn't know how to be in the world. It's true. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And and I did exactly that as soon as I got well. That was it. I, I went straight off and I went and scored and the person I scored from was long time drug dealer and uh, and then conveniently became my boyfriend. Right, Classic. of course. Yes, yeah, yeah. Obviously. <laughs> Basically, every boyfriend was either a truck user or a truck dealer. Yeah. Just standard. Um, we, we joke about this, but it, it is so true, though, isn't it, that for many people, dating a drug dealer is really the way you, quote-unquote, find your, your habit, really. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, and that was absolutely true for me. Um, across the board, Actually, until I until I came into recovery, the the only people I dated, I didn't, I, I just couldn't understand normal people mm. that didn't want to party like I did. You know, yeah. Um, I also needed somebody that was hardcore. You know, like I was hardcore. I didn't. I thought I was shit at most things, right? But the one thing I knew I was really, really good at was taking drugs. Was doing drugs. That was the thing I was best at. Isn't I it interesting, <laughs> this? I think if you're anyone, if, if you're a listener out there and you're really proud of the amount of drugs that you can do, I think for us addicts who are in recovery now, for me personally, that was definitely a surefire way in hindsight to think, mm, actually, mm -hmm. it's not just a sad statement of what I think I'm good at. It's also a surefire sign that I'm actually an addict. Yeah, literally yeah. that. Did you... Did you have any awareness around using men to find your ha habit? I mean, did you date those guys also because they were cute and you got on with them or was it almost transactional? If you're enjoying this podcast and would like other addicts and alcoholics to hear it, then please make the pesky AIs and algorithms work their 12th step. Hit like and subscribe. Um, sometimes it was transactional. Yeah. Definitely through my... Through my using journey, there were definitely mm -hmm. uh, a lot. I mean, it got pretty degrading, and it was pretty, 
pretty horrible. Um, did you understand that at that time? Did you know it? Or was it just like a like that voice inside that we try to bury so much? No, no. I, no, I knew. That, mm. it, it, no, no, no. It had, you know, further down the line, you know, in my mid, mid to late 20s, it would definitely become transactional. I couldn't afford my addiction without without that transactional process, I suppose, um, which was utterly soul-destroying, I would also like yeah. to add. It was just one of the worst parts of my using. It, mm. was, it was awful. Um, and it's taken me a long time to recover from, actually. Yeah. I've had to put a lot of work into that yeah. of my life. Um, I thought it'd probably be... I mean, we've all done things in... in in our in our using time that we're ashamed of, mm. and I'd I'd assume that that would be one for you. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But the boyfriends that I had, you know, the the one that I was actually talking about, the one that I went to school from, that then became my boyfriend, and straight after me getting better, I don't even know if I was fully better then, but yeah, he he and I we we did also get on really well mm. you know we've been in the same social group i've known him quite a long time anyway so yeah no we did get on really mm. well and um yeah we were together quite a long time well uh, for an addict at that point in my life yeah three and a half years um but the thing that was that tipping point with that is he was my coke dealer he was my weed dealer um but his brother was an ivy user and um heroin right yeah and um yeah and so those people you look down on previously no actually i was one of these weird i i oh so sorry so from that meeting yeah, yeah. i'm nothing mm -hmm. like this but i do you know what I, I i said no like that because i watched a movie um with angelina jolie um uh, when i was 16 and it's basically a story spoiler alert for anybody but basically she ends up taking loads of cocaine she's a model supermodel that progresses into heroin she then ends up going on to smoking it, goes onto the needle, ends up with AIDS and then dies, right? There's not really a good outlook for her in this film. But I watched this film and I was like, wow, that looks really cool. <laughs> like, it's such sick thinking. I can still remember that now, today. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yes, you're right. I did look down on those people where I had that high ego, low self-esteem. Um, and now suddenly I was being introduced to to her and and uh, and we spoke to her. We said, as long as we don't use IV, we'll be fine. Hold we then? Uh, so yeah, at th th this point, twenty twenty one, yeah. Right. Okay. So yeah, no, so, yeah, twenty one maybe. Yeah, and yeah. so. Did your relationship to heroin was it a love affair like you like you had with with cocaine, where you immediately thought, oh, this is just so brilliant? Was it similar? Yeah, coke didn't work for me anymore. Once I had ME, I mean, the panic attacks were really, really serious. Like, my body just couldn't tolerate using like I had been using. Uh, but my mind wanted me to continue doing it, and it just didn't work. And then I took, took and I, I continued to do it, obviously, but just wasn't working. And then I ended up taking um, this heroin, and it, exactly that. It was like stepping into a warm bath of just bliss like all my problems went away a bit like what happened for me with um with the coke when I first took that it was the exact same experience um but just with a new drug and I guess that's what you learn isn't it when you come into recovery it's just that progression of the illness it starts somewhere yeah, yeah. and it weaves around and your life is a bit like snakes and ladders you go up you come down you go up you come down and 
um, this drug doesn't work for me anymore. I've torn the arse out of it. Yeah. I need a new experience. Towards the end of my using, I came to the point where cocaine wouldn't work for me any longer. And I thankfully got into recovery before starting other drugs. I mean, I'd done plenty of other ones beforehand anyway. So, and I'm really grateful that I didn't, but I'm sure I would have if I hadn't come into recovery before that. And also, there's something really interesting about what you just said there. Someone much smarter and wiser than me said that as addicts, we essentially what we're addicted to is elusive feelings, right? Feelings which are hard to qualify and they are extremely difficult to get. The first time you do a drug is one of those feelings where you're experiencing something new. It You like the effect that it produces. You're in love with the effect that it produces. And the first time you do it is so intense and so powerful that you keep chasing it again and again and again, never really getting it again. And if you do that with different drugs, of course, you're just prolonging your drug career, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Mm. But yeah, that was that was what happened. Yeah. Um, so here you are. You stopped using cocaine. You're on heroin. You're smoking it with your boyfriend and his brother, perhaps. Uh, not his brother at that point, oh, just but just just the boyfriend at that point. Yeah. Um. But yeah, no. And then it and then it progressed, and yeah, by that point, we're now using with his brother, and I'm now in and out of crack houses and you know heroin using looks quite different to cocaine using Mm. actually Mm. um or it did for me it took me into areas i'd never really been in before what Um, kind of areas well just like not i don't mean like physically no no but i mean metaphorically yeah metaphorically um maybe i do mean physically actually as well (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah, it just it, it was just a darker a darker world that I ended yeah. up in, um, and a much more disposable world. Maybe I don't know if I'm expressing mm. this very well. Mm. You mentioned crack houses for those of for those listeners who've not been inside a crack house. Mm. What's it look like? Take us inside. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, God. A place I never really ever want to go back into, but yeah. So there's pretty much crap everywhere. Whoever lives there is using as well. Mm. Um, I mean, there's a very, very thick, distinctive smell as soon as you walk in to the house. Um, there's the smell of heroin. It's the smell of gear. It just sticks to anything when somebody's using it. Uh, your hair, your clothes, um, any soft furnishings. Um, there's, you know, normally more than one person. There'll be multiple people in there. People you um, don't know, probably. People, but sometimes you do as well. Um, either people are using or they're waiting to be served up. They're unpredictable people. You know, sometimes there'll be a dog there. God, there I've been quite a few places where there's just been like some mad dog that you're like, oh my and just get eaten alive um yeah there's no level of hygiene there's definitely never any toilet roll in the toilets and <laughs> something you need <laughs> it's um it's not a pleasant not a pleasant environment no. but at the time you don't care 
Like if I'm looking at it now, there's nothing about that environment that would make me want to walk in, that would make me want to sit down on a couch and hang out with these people. No. But at that point in my life, I literally didn't care. Like I would go and I ended up in, um, infesting my dad's place in Paddington because I was stopping there at one point and because um, I had nowhere else to be and I was living in London and um, yeah and I ended up taking bed bugs from a crack house through to to my dad's place and it went across the entire place it's grotty I don't yeah. know how to dress it up yeah. and and the thing is as well is like I don't want to also be really disrespectful or rude because there are people that are still living in that sort of environment and it's a lack of power of choice. You know, I did Total powerlessness. Have, I had total powerlessness in that environment. Like, and have I been into that environment other than to help somebody since? No. The reason why I ask is, is one, not everybody has been in a crack house. And sometimes it's, you know, painting a visual picture sometimes just really helps us to realize where we were at. Yeah. But obviously, it's a sort of place, if you will, it's an allegory of of the powerlessness, right? It's a symbol, it's a metaphor for our powerlessness, you know, because nobody chooses to be there. Yeah, you definitely don't choose to be there. Um, there was only ever a need yeah. to be in that environment. And actually, do you know what? I, I also will say this. There was part of me that was functioning. You know, I was in and out of jobs for quite a while. And... Um, and yeah, I'd lose a lot of jobs, but the, at the end of the day, where I'd be able to go and go onto a traveler's site um, and I'd be scoring and then I'd hang out there and they had like a generator out the back and they had about three um, videos, vid VHS, right, <laughs> that went round and you kind of knew which video at what point it was because you spent so much bloody time there. And um, it was the place that I felt most comfortable yeah. You know, I didn't want to go home. Um, I didn't want to be around my parents. Mm. I didn't have any friends at that point. All my friends had cut me off. But these people who used, you know, who sold the big issue, who lived on um, on a site, were in a crack house, were other people that were, you know, junkies just like me. Yeah. It's just I had a blazer, incredibly underweight, like, you know, wafer thin. But I just had a bit more of a polished junky look yeah yeah but those were my people they yeah. were the people that made me feel safe at that point yeah contradiction if ever there was one the polished junkie <laughs> <laughs> absolutely think, did you did you have any self-awareness then did you ever think to yourself what am i fucking doing here i mean you know did you ever really get that moment of a, a moment of clarity perhaps to kind of go hang on there i'm sitting amongst all these people i kind of know some of them some I don't really know you know we're watching VHS tapes although it's probably past the year 2000 at this point this mm. is a really sad life yeah I do and I remember one really vivid time where I had that moment it's funny how these things stay with you and I I wasn't on the pin myself at that point but there was a guy who literally had had like got he was trying to get a vein I I don't know how long it was. It must have been over an hour. And he was just going in his hand, in his arm, in his neck, oh. with a mirror in front of him, in his groin. It just like every 
possible place he could try and get himself. And there was just, I mean, tissues and tissues of blood and needles and citric and dishes, just bloody water cups. And it was just, and I remember just sitting there thinking, on my tag, but not leaving because I couldn't leave. Yeah, there were definitely points. Mm. And how did it progress from there in the end? We're talking about, I mean, we often talk about rock bottoms and it's almost a little bit mystified, I suppose, at some point, this rock bottom moment. It, you know, for some people there are many, for some people there aren't really any. They just kind of decide they want this life no longer. And some people, like myself, end up in hospital or in jail or something like that. And then you know when you've hit it, right? What was your experience? Yeah, so, I mean, just many Many, many rock bottoms. I mean, I've listed a few there, ill health. Um, definitely being in hospitals, that was another reoccurring theme for me. Um, ODing in my mum's house, um, her kicking me out, um, my boyfriend leaving me, another boyfriend that was absolutely the love of my life, him leaving me, couldn't afford the rent, moved dealers in with me, lost the house relocating to Bristol, ending up in dry houses, still couldn't stay clean, going into a treatment centre. I mean, it was just endless mm. and endless rock bottoms. Yeah, you know, I guess also, you know, just when you're doing really degrading things, mm. I mean, those are moments where you think, what am I doing? Mm. Especially when you're sober, when you haven't got any money in your pocket mm. and you're clucking. Um, you're not sober, so use that word like it. But yeah, um, yeah, I'm I'm ill because I haven't been able to fix my habit that day, and you're having to go and do. So you were physically dependent on heroin. Physically dependent, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. Were you injecting as well? By the end, I was, yeah. Mm. But um, yeah, it took me some time to get there, but it brought me, brought me to my knees very quickly once I hit the pen. Mm. Um, so I think there were just multiple, multiple things. You know, losing all my all my friends and literally nobody wanted to be associated with me my family couldn't stand being around me the only person was my brother really that was like still willing to listen but I think he was also just like this is hopeless he, he had no idea what to do he would listen and not get annoyed with me but I was just I didn't belong in life and I didn't want to be alive mm. um, which brings us neatly to question four which is did you want to die and did you consider suicide? Uh, yeah, many, 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 many times. The, I think the thing is, is that I didn't want to be alive, but I didn't have the courage to kill myself either. And I just, I, you know, as you're discussing this, and actually as we're discussing it, you just realise how you're a walking contradiction as an addict, aren't you? Yeah. It's just such a conflict conflicting world to be in a conflicting world of pain all the time yeah yeah I found life a real challenge and I fantasized about the idea of killing myself all the time I knew exactly how I would kill mm. myself as well I had two options um and because I hate pain which is weird considering another contradiction um but um yeah, I was like, I need, I need an easy method. I need these easy methods. Um, but yeah, never, never, never went through with it. I self harmed, um, and I, you know, I overdosed. But that, 
again wasn't it wasn't an intentional I just took yeah. too much heroin um and ended up in hospital yeah 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 um actually I ended up in hospital more than one occasion but that was a particularly bad one it was on the floor of my mum's kitchen straight living room thing. did she find you yeah she was in the room at the time actually just and called the ambulance and so on yeah yeah I mean it was all very out in the open at that point um so but that didn't stop you either yeah no 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 she kicking me out actually was one of the best things she ever did for me but um I hated her for it. It must have been the most difficult thing for her at the time. Yeah, it was because she, um, one of our family friends, close family friends that we grew up with, um, the eldest son, so she's friends with the parents and friends with the kids. Um, and the the eldest of the kids um, was a heroin addict. And um, his dad just lost his temper with him one evening. Um and just said, sort it out, just sort it out. Mm. I've had enough of this. And he drove into a forest and he hung himself. And my mum watched the ripple effect of what that did. That family never has recovered from that. And so my mum knew, my mum knew the consequences. She was like, this is 50-50. You know, she might never come back from this, mm. kicking her out. I feel fine. Um, but I know she's going to die if she stays here because I'm just enabling her. And my mum had gone and sought some outside help at this point, and she had gone to the local drug and alcohol services to try and get some help with that, gone to some parent groups. She'd gone to lots of things to try and see mm. some advice, I think. Yeah. What other methods, and that's our question five, did you try to get sober before finding the rooms, or did you try any? Um. Yeah. <laughs> I tried many things. Um, like I said, I had already talked about the counselling. Yeah. That was one obvious one. And I did that on multiple occasions. Mm. I mean, the amount of money that my parents must have spent on counsellors for me is quite obscene. But again, I would never talk about my addiction. So mm. that was just never beneficial. Um, being on and off scripts, um, prescription, you know, um, suboxone, um, drug and alcohol services, um, I did this thing called intuitive recovery at one point. Yeah. Um, so he'll, they talk to you. That's really good. It was great, like, biology lesson, biology of the brain lesson. And they talk to you about your amygdala, and they talk to you about your frontal cortex, and they talk to you about, like, the language and the, your reactions and the response part of your brain, the fight or flight, and how, you know, if you just change your behavioral patterns when you walk up, to go and put your card in that card machine, then you'll be able to have that second thought that enters your mind that says, no, don't do that because that will lead to taking drugs and drugs are bad. It wasn't effective for me. Yeah. <laughs> obviously. No, obviously not. No. <laughs> um, but yeah, I did that. Um, and um, yeah, going into a treatment centre, obviously just being removed from. Yeah. yeah. Did you go there willingly? No, not at all. No. Mm. My dad actually used this analogy, and I talk to this always when I'm speaking to my sponsees. Um, but he said to me, he said, it's like, it's like you're on, because I was worried about my job. I was going to lose my job um, uh, if I went into this treatment centre. And my dad said, it's like 
you're on the operating table, waiting to be rushed into theatre. And you're about to have life-changing surgery by going into this treatment centre. Because otherwise you're going to die. It's a guarantee. And you're worrying about wearing odd socks. (laughs) That is brilliant. Yeah. And I'll always hang on to that. Yeah. Because that was the level of triviality. And I see this over and over and over again. Totally. With, you know, friends that have gone back out there and the reasons why they can't come back into the rooms, why they can't move out of their flat, why they can't go back into a dry house. Why they have to stay stuck where they are using drugs. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So you tried quite a few things and then you found the rooms. Yeah, I was also going to say, you know, just other more kind of trivial method, you know, getting somebody to take my bank cards off me, you know, and, oh, take my car away or put me under house arrest, you know, they'll like literally put me under house arrest, you know, that would be not my choice. But I once did ask somebody to put me under house arrest and they locked me in the house so me and my boyfriend could detox. And we were just going to sweat it out, cold turkey. And he he managed to. And I let myself out of one of these tiny little windows that I could just about get my head and shoulders through. And thank God, I think I was so skinny at that point. But yeah, I managed to get out the window, dropped onto the ground and ran and caught a bus into town and scored. And I just, no matter what, my, you know, I remember also doing drug testing, right? So what, I remember my, Another boyfriend that didn't take very favorably to me taking heroin. Cocaine was fine, but heroin not. And um, pecking order. Yeah, there yeah, it is. pecking order. There it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, yeah, and he would make me go and do drugs tests. And if he couldn't make it, so I obviously then was like really white knuckling it on these occasions, or I'd be on a script because he was kind of okay with the fact that I was on a script. Um, but and because I was a photographer. And I understood, this is my paint coming back into play again, right? <laughs> but I would edit my test, so I'd take a photograph of it and I'd edit my test results. Yeah, resourcefulness. So, so yeah, so yeah. It's negative. Yeah. Just ridiculous catalogue of means and ways to... And I also saw a shaman. I saw a white witch as well that I thought was going to cure me of addiction. I mean, I've gone to some serious lengths to try this. You really have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And moving locations, classic one as well, like chopping yeah. and changing, where else can I go? So you really tried everything. I literally tried everything. Yeah, yeah. 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 I um, I tried a few of those. Not the shaman, though, I have to say, I'll, you know. But um, I'll just give you one just for the fun of it. I ended up, as ever, deleting my dealer's phone number, mm. right, <laughs> on a hangover. Delete the dealer's phone number. And then, of course, next, it, what, a day later, maybe, or whatever, I'm like, oh, I'll be all right, and so on. I'll find the phone number again somewhere online or on your statements or wherever i'll find it in any case you can't hide with the cloud and all you can't really it's impossible to lose a phone number by now yeah and so i put it back in into the phone the next morning i'll do the same thing that by the end of this process you know, or after a few weeks or so i just knew it off by heart <laughs> you know and it's just madness absolute yeah. madness yeah so you came into the rooms and when you first came into the rooms did you struggle with the word god uh question six Oh, yes. Yes, I did. The God was, God word was a very contentious word for me. Um, 
mainly because growing up, my dad just, he mocked anybody who had any, anything to be associated with religion. Um, he just didn't like. And it was almost like if you were part of that, it, it was quite, it was to be ashamed of, really. Um, so I really didn't want to be associated with it. Um, you know, people pleasing and trying to get my dad's approval was a really big thing. So that was like weird. Um, and I just, I don't know. I was like, I'm turning up to these rooms because I've got a terrifying drug habit. And I'm mainly turning up because I want other people to shut up around me. Not because I really... I just want the consequences to go away. I don't actually want to get clean, right? And now you're telling me... So I can get on board with step one. Because you're telling me all about my problem. And I really got on board with that. I was like, yes, yes, that's me. And that bit's me. And when people would share back or they'd do a share and there was lots of step one... I can... I'm, I'm on board. I can identify with all of that. You're talking about me. Oh my God, I feel a sense of belonging. I don't feel judged by the outside world. Amazing. Oh... And now there's a step two, and you're very quickly talking about God. Mm. Uh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, not for me. Um, and then, you know, I tried, you know, of, I'm, as I said at the beginning, I'm 36 now, and I went to that first meeting at the age of 20. So, and I'm just coming up to four years in March. So I'm not there yet. So it's a long time that I've been trying to do this thing. Um, and I tried many different ways, going in and out of the rooms. It didn't work. It's like revolving doors over and over again. Um, but something kept making me keep going back. And obviously, every time I was going back, they were talking about the word God. So even though this was this contentious issue for me, I still kept going back. So there was mm. obviously something I liked about 12 Steps. And other addicts mm. um, in recovery, I should add. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, then I was in another drug fellowship and I just couldn't get it. I just kept relapsing. And every time I relapsed, I got kicked out of another dry house, pack my bags, go out for 28 days, find somewhere else to live and come back in the rooms. Um, get back in another dry house and try and sort it out. And somebody just said, D, why don't you do something different? You need a quick solution. You will get a quick solution in CA. You will go through that book and you'll get connected to something bigger than you. And this was where that God word became problematic again. And I just said, I just don't understand this God word. How is God going to cure anything for me? And I had all those other worldly issues that surround the word God that I really argued for in that. Um, and they just said, use it as an acronym. Gift of desperation. How desperate are you? I was like, I'm really, really desperate. And they were like, gift of desperation, G-O-D. Can you get on board with that? Can you see it working in other people? And I was like, yeah, clearly other people have got something that I really want, but I have no idea how to get. Okay, maybe just stop snapping your mind completely shut to the idea of the word God and just treat it as the power of the people in the room and this gift of desperation. And just see what happens. All you have to have is a willingness. I was like, okay, that I can do. And it was, I mean, it was like a 
a, a chink of light. There, it wasn't like the door was wide open to this concept yet, but it was a chink and it was enough of a chink and it kept me going back and it kept me kind of buying into that process of God um, and having a real willingness. And the more that I bought into it, the more those little God moments started to arrive, you know. And that is right right here, our, our question seven, which is how do you experience your higher power today? Which is just another way of saying, how do you experience it on a daily basis? But also, if you wanted to share a God moment, if you have one, then, you know, this would be the moment. If you're enjoying this podcast and would like other addicts and alcoholics to hear it, then please make the pesky AIs and algorithms work their 12th step. Hit like and subscribe. How do I experience God on a daily basis? So, like I said, my, um, my mind was totally snapshot to the idea of God. But I think my mind was pretty snapshot to most things happening around me in life, right? <laughs> like the beauty of life just didn't exist in my world. And, you know, there's a lot of people in the rooms that talk about nature mm. and just becoming like connected to this amazing planet that we live on. Yeah. If there was a beautiful sunset, I didn't care. If there was a rainbow in the sky, I definitely didn't notice. You know, if that warm, nutritious heat of the sun being out on a summer's day, like, it was just irritating. I was already too hot and bothered. I didn't want more heat, you know? I wanted to be a vampire hiding in a room alone. <laughs> so, so suddenly I can show up for life. And that I experienced that kind of richness. But for me, really, God is just love. And if I'm not, in a space of God, I'm not in a space of love. And I think that, you know, for me, that's my, that's my kind of God consciousness, right? So if I'm in a place of judgment or competitiveness or self-hatred, gossiping, you know, putting other people down to make myself feel better, there's no love in that and there's no God working in that for me. Um, and I think, you know, you mentioned it earlier about that, that kind of like deep, deep knowing of where we push something down, we do something despite that knowing. And I had a lot of those moments in my using where I knew right from wrong, but I had lost the power of choice. And so I did the wrong anyway, because I needed to, because I had no other comprehensible option at that point. Um, and there's still moments that occur in my life now where I'm like, mm, I could lie. Or do you know what? I really want to feel the sense of belonging in the office. The office is actually a really problematic space for me, to be honest. <laughs> Work is probably one of the areas that I find like the hardest because I put on a character in some regard to show up for work. I think a lot of people do. Um, and I'm also haven't broken my anonymity. They all know I don't drink but they don't know the, the reasons why. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. So, actually, sometimes I can really go against my gut and be like, you know, I want to feel like I belong. I want to belong. I want to join that conversation. I want to be part of that group. And they're gossiping about someone. And I have to check myself. And I feel rubbish. I instantly feel rubbish. If I join in, I feel rubbish. Um, and I'm not aligned with God's will when I'm doing that. Yes. And I think that's how God shows up for me today is I'm, I just know 
um, it's that that's still small voice within me that talks to me and I can either choose to ignore it or go with it, which is basically step three, right? Mm. My thoughts and my actions. My thoughts, self. My actions are God's will. Um, and I can go with self for a little bit, but I can't do it too long because I don't have that dubious luxury other men do or women do. Mm. I'll, I'll drink again. I'll yeah. use again. So, yeah, I have to be very in line with God. Mm. Mm. Question eight, which part of the steps were the most difficult for you? Well, we just covered step two. Step two was And three. And, and three, yeah, actually, yeah, and three. It continues to be. Um, yeah, but I think step four was, that was like mind-blowing. Yeah. My poor sponsor. She had to sit through 13 hours of step four <laughs> of my first step four. For those people who don't know about the steps all that well, the step four is where we make an inventory of ourselves and essentially you write down pretty much every resentment you've ever had against anything or anyone and all your fears and all the harms and your sexual conduct. It's quite, um, <laughs> it's quite an undertaking so, and often a hurdle. So that was the most difficult yeah, I think mm. I, it was, yeah, an undertaking. It was full on. Firstly, it was hard because I made it hard. Because like you hear over and over again in meetings, yeah. I stagnated. You know, full of delight going through step one because I, I can relate and I can get on board and, oh, this is the place I need to be. Step two, problematic initially, and then I got on board with that. Great, okay, now flying through these steps suddenly you start to feel a sense of accomplishment where mm. I've accomplished nothing for ages. I feel like a worthless piece of crap most of the time. Now I'm doing stuff. I've got this. I've got this and I'm getting validation and people are kind of cheering cheering me on and championing, championing me in the rooms and like, I'm feeling pumped. And then your sponsor gives you <laughs> this, these columns to fill out. Worksheets. These worksheets. Oh. Yeah. And, you know, the Latin for resentment is to refeel. Yes. I refelt all of it. You know, this was stuff that I buried. And so initially I just danced about it and I didn't, I didn't want to do it, didn't want to engage with it. So, and then I was like put under pressure, but I had to get on with it. So finally got on with it, started writing. So I didn't even think I was a resentful person. I was so consumed by fear. I was a fear-driven person. I could associate with fear and I, I knew I was going to find the fears a bit easy. But I was like, I'm pretty easy going. I'm all right. I don't really feel like I'm that annoyed by much in life. Turns out. Yeah, that was a lot. And I think this was one of the things that I found the hardest. You know, I'd never been accountable. Mm. Um, I, you know, Simply blamed. I pointed the finger. Um, I'd never really looked at my part in anything. Um, I was such a victim. I was full of self-pity. Um, and I had no ability to be honest with myself. I think that was the thing I, I found the hardest. And I also found really hard was doing that step five where your sponsor is feeding back the bits you've missed, of which, by the way, there were many because I was completely delusional at that point. And I couldn't see myself. 
I couldn't see the truth about myself. And I found it really hard, somebody telling me about myself. Yeah. That was tough. Mm. And to be vulnerable mm. and to express feelings without running out the door and going using. That was all I'd done. I mean, when I first properly came into recovery and started going through, this, that was, I was 30. Half my life had been devoted to drink and drugs. Yeah. I hadn't developed any coping strategies other than that. And now you want me to sit here and write about this and now read it and be vulnerable and hear some feedback. Christ, my most shameful parts of my life. It was hard, but it was brilliant. It was brilliant because I was never going to recover if I didn't do that. It was vital. It was such a vital part of me getting well, yeah. of seeing the truth of who I was. Mm. Because if I don't have the truth... I cannot do anything to change. No. Yeah, I'm just in a place of denial. And what's the acronym for that? Don't even know I'm lying. Hey, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's very nice. Don't even know I'm lying. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think also one of the other steps that was hard was step nine. And this kind of feeds into what I was just saying about step four. Um. I didn't know how to do an apology. Mm. I mean, I'd apologised over and over again. Everyone was sick of my apologies, right? <laughs> Nobody wanted to hear a sorry from me, actually, anymore, because mm. it just was worthless. But what I learned was with step nine is that if you're saying sorry, if you're going to make amends and apologising for your behaviour, that means that there is then a knock-on effect of a change of behavior, that you don't repeat that same behavior. So your conduct absolutely has to change. Otherwise, there is no point showing up for that amends. Mm, I th my, my sponsor explained it to me a bit like that, and I'm paraphrasing, but essentially, if you don't change your behavior, you're just repeating saying sorry. And making an amend is not apologizing, really. Mm -hmm. It's also changing the way you behave. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, you're just continuing just to say sorry yeah, and, and without effect. Really, you know, and of course, it's also a selfless act. Yeah. It's about giving the other person whom you've harmed the chance to tell you how that made them feel and gives you the chance to say, I want to put this right. That's quite different to an apology because like you, I'd say sorry a hundred times a day, didn't mean it, didn't care, mm -hmm. right? It's quite different if you say, how can I make it right? Yeah. 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 Such a profound difference. Yeah, and... I I I also didn't know how to say sorry and and do a clean apology. Say sorry and shut up and listen. Yeah, you know, what? And ask him how did this affect you? Exactly what you've just said. How did this affect you? And allow them to respond to me without coming back with any justification. Yeah, but you did this. Yeah, exactly. More feedback. I didn't like feedback. It damaged my ego. My very oversensitive ego. <laughs> yeah. And I had to practice how to do a clean apology. How to ask somebody what it was like for them and allow them to freely speak and feel safe for the first time speaking in front of me that I wasn't going to do my old behaviours. Yeah. So, yeah, that was also a task. Wonderful. Wonderful. Question nine, which character defects 
give you most trouble? Um, how long have we got? <laughs> Plenty of time. Um, yeah. So also I- for the listener, very quickly, um, Bea is the first person who's who's come to and to to be my guest on Twelve Steps and Twelve Questions. And comes entirely equipped with a notepad and notes, and I am absolutely in awe of this. So, I think we will have a few character defects coming up. Take it away, D. <laughs> this is my anxious side coming out, right? Like I just have to be like over prepared <laughs> for everything. Hence the notebook. Um, so yeah. So I mean, first thing on the list: self-esteem, self-worth. So, um, and like I was saying, right? Work this. This is all to do with work quite often. Um, self-image, um, how other people view me. Pride. Pride. Mm. Prestige. Wow. Yeah. I mean, how other people view me, it's, it's a thing that's like still an area that's tough for me. Um, yeah, I had an eating disorder alongside all the other addictions. Just throw that one in the mix as well. And so... Your self-image, um, something that actually came up for me this morning was being in the gym, comparing myself to others, the way other people look, um, how hard I need to train to get like that. Um, and of course, I had to do that thing that we do, pick up the phone, talk to somebody else about it at once, um, you know, doing my step-down inventory, basically. Um, but yeah, that one still still gets to me and um, feeds into my self-esteem a lot of a lot of the time and on a good day I'm kind of okay with myself but on a bad day it can still be really problematic and put me into quite like a mentally tough spot I suppose Mm. that I have to really use the tools to be able to work through and use the fellowship around me and people like me that think like me to help me self-correct again um, and tap into that power, you know, mm. tap mm. into that higher power. Because all of these defects, again, are not coming back to that place of love that I was saying, of that self-love, right? Um, so I'm not in line with God or my higher power and what my higher power would want for me if I'm in these place um, of defects. Um, it, we were just talking about uh, the steps that were the most problematic for me. And actually the one that's, the easiest for me has been step 12. Like, other than step one and initially being like, yeah, I'm an addict. Step 12 was by far and away the easiest one for me. To get involved, service, and helping other people. It, it, it was like a doddle. It wasn't, it wasn't a task for me. It was something I just enjoyed doing. I wanted to do. Um, but it's the thing that actually has turned into a bit of a defect for me as well is putting others needs before my own I am an absolute caretaker through and through um and kind of blindsided sometimes by that caretaker role um so I've had to do quite a lot of changing that actually really quite significantly within the last year year and a half um because actually when I'm when I'm doing too, I guess the thing is, is defects, right? They're just overused assets. And humility is one of the things that we strive for in this program. And humility just essentially means balance. So it's not about me saying that, you know, 
that caretaker caretaker absolutely could be an asset but it can sometimes be a defect it just depends which end of the spectrum i'm at with it um and that's the bits that i kind of need to watch for mm. with that mm. um one of the the hardest things as an addict surely is leading a balanced life <laughs> i continuously overdo or overdo everything or or alternatively not touch Right, either one or the other. I am so I struggle a lot with this that I overdo everything or I just don't touch it. But you know, finding a sort of middle way, right, where I do things reasonably, sanely is still, even today, one of the hardest tasks, I think. And it's clearly also something that most addicts, I think, struggle with in one way or another. We overdo things that by definition, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Brings us to question 10. What is the best thing that recovery has given you? It's just, this list is kind of endless, right? Um, it has given me so many things. I mean, let's go with a bit that kind of doesn't really matter as much, but I guess is the thing that other people would deduce as recovery having given me, which is the materialistic stuff. Right. So for the people Visible. that aren't educated around the disease of addiction and the fact that it's an inside-out job, actually, they will view you as recovered by what you've got externally. And so on an external level, it's quite remarkable. I mean, I bought my own house this year, uh, last year, sorry, a year ago, a year ago. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, I work in a very well-known building in London um, I have a great stable job um, and a lot of responsibility in that job. Um, I have financial security. You know, the other day, actually, even on that, I thought I had some change sitting on my side. I mean, it was like whatever, a tenner and some coins. And I just, I had just this moment where I was like, that would literally never have happened. <laughs> Not a chance. Not even 2p would be on the side. Everything would have been accounted for and spent. On gear. On gear. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I just have the freedom to do what I want, when I want, you know, within reason today. So from a materialistic standpoint, yeah, it's great. And the outside world that you can see, you know, with that, that quote unquote, you made it. I made it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I look like other people do now. Yeah. Um, but then there's the bigger picture stuff, right? The important bit is that I have that freedom. You know, I have that freedom in my heart. Now, um, I have that peace of mind. Now, don't get me wrong. Yeah. My head's still crazy. You know, and I think most normal people still probably wouldn't want to sit in my crazy. If they wanted to do an exchange of brains for a day, they're quite quickly abort they press the eject button i think within 30 seconds <laughs> yeah, you'd be surprised what people hide in the quote-unquote normal brains but yeah true, i think true. they'll be for a different podcast <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah i have a real change of thinking today i have some tools i have friends like real real friends i hadn't i was the loneliest person when i arrived in the rooms um i didn't trust anybody and 
And do you know what women I definitely didn't trust? I found women really hard work. I couldn't manipulate them. They saw right through me or they were in competition with me. It was just easier to hang out with guys. Guys just stay in a male social group, yeah? And they just accept you a lot more with all of your kind of, um, I guess, slightly less favourable parts, right? But the main part, you can't manipulate them. These have been my lifeline in recovery. Without women, I couldn't have done this. And um, and they're my day one friends, you know, that have gone through this whole recovery journey with me. Um, and I can't ever imagine not being friends with them. I mean, most of the people in my social group now have a few normies, yeah? But most of the people in my friendship group are from recovery. Yeah, and that's just like an amazing thing. I have an amazing relationship with my family now, with all of them. I've made amends to all of them. And, you know, even my stepdad, you know, and like I can just, I just look at things like, you know, I had all these hang-ups and like, you know, I talked about the childhood stuff. And I had all these kind of hang-ups and resentments, I suppose, when I came into early recovery and doing that step four stuff. And there was my justification around my using, all my, all my reasons um my alibis and now I can just look at them and just be like they were doing the best job that they could with the tools that they had they're just a human being you know, they don't need to be on some pedestal in my head they're just another human being trying to get through this crazy thing called life right um and who am I to sit in a place of judgment about other people when the methods I tried to get through this crazy life were pretty out there so you know um and they've accepted me so you know forgiveness has been a massive part of this yeah um i guess like also you know self-acceptance um working with other women and you know i talked about step 12 being the easiest step for me but it is it talks about it being the bright spot in the book mm. And it literally is that for me. When I see a woman arrive in the rooms of Cocaine Anonymous, broken, confused, their life is in tatters, their relationships are in tatters, their relationship with themselves is non-existent, and they hate the fact that they can't stop. They can see that the drugs are a problem, but they have no idea how to stop using them. And then you see them, you know, go through the steps with you. And you literally just, I mean, I'm not doing anything. I'm I'm literally just doing what was given to me. It was freely given to me. Like, this is the thing. This program's amazing. It's for free, right? All you have to pay is £8 for a book. And normally your sponsor will do that for you anyway. So you just turn up to these rooms and you listen and you build connections and you make friends and you get a sponsor and that sponsor just gives away what was freely given to them. And you see the lights come on in that person. And then you see them go off and they help other women or men. Yeah. yeah. This actually brings us pretty straight and neatly into question 11, which is, what would you say to a newcomer or someone wondering if they're an addict? I mean, obviously, I can never diagnose anybody as being an addict. Of course. You know, that was very true for me had to fully concede to my innermost self. That was really the turning point. When I could do that, mm. that was when I got recovery. When it wasn't for anybody else, there were no outside reasons. 
and all the reservations have been smashed. But if I were to meet a newcomer, I would, and I've done this actually multiple times, you know, like I said, I haven't really broken my anonymity in work, except for when I've had to. And that has been because I've seen somebody have a problematic relationship with um, drink or drugs. And I've done that on a few occasions now. Um, And one of them did go into the rooms, into AA. um, And the other thought it was a great idea, but then never did. And and that's the thing. I have no monopoly on God, as it says in the book. No monopoly on recovery either. No monopoly on recovery. So, but all I do is I just share my story. Yeah. I just share my story. And, you know, I will try and make it relate to the context of that person, right? So there's certain war stories I'm not going to go into if it doesn't fit that, I guess, maybe not demographic, but like if it's not their story. So, you know, maybe there's no point of me going too much into the heroin side of things if somebody's sitting before me that's got a coke problem and a drink problem. But I can relate to that part of their their story as well. Mm-hmm. Um I think one of the main things though is just getting them connected. Getting them connected to help helping them identify and and it's not for it's me to share my story for them to go, yeah, that's me too. I get that, you've done that, and that is true of me. Oh, and this is what you've done to recover. Oh, and they don't feel silly and they don't feel ashamed and that you create a safe space. And they also know if they walk away and they don't want to do anything with it, that you are somebody that's safe to call again in the future. And I think that's one of the most important things because I think we talk about, you know, addiction is the disease of isolation. Yeah, definitely. Like you are just, you could be in a room full of people and you can't connect. You just don't feel any sense of belonging. But most of the time, it actually physically brings you to a place of isolation. Um, so yeah, having that safe space is really important. Um, but I think ideally trying to get somebody into the rooms, like actually just bring them to a meeting, meet other people, because you might not be their cup of tea. Mm. I might not be somebody's cup of tea, yeah? yeah. But you can be sure that if they walk through those doors they're going to meet somebody that is and they're going to hear a message carried from the the top table that they're going to relate to some of that person's share if they haven't related to my story then there'll probably be something in that person's story that there'll be another to. story for them or there'll be some sharebacks yeah that they'll be able to relate to you know this is a we program not an i program for a very good reason mm. um and then i guess ultimately you know the only way, we, and it talks about it in the forwards of, of the big book, but um, the only way that we actually really recover is through the literature. You know, the, the Alcoholics Anonymous big book is a textbook and it's an instruction manual. And if we follow it in that order, then we can get recovery. I think it's worth, just for those people who haven't gone through the book or who don't know the book all that well, to perhaps just point out very quickly that the book is... It was written in 1938, off the top of my head, 38, 39, something like that. The way you looked at me, it must have been 39. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, it was actually 39. And, and um, it's the textbook that we use in order to recover and go through the steps. Now, it is an absolutely fascinating thing that we recover with a book that was written such a long time ago. And that is what you said. It's a. It's like a 
guide to what it's like to being it what it's like to be an addict or an alcoholic and how to recover from that it's an absolute recovery manual mm. uh, you don't get well in the meetings we've heard it in the rooms a hundred gazillion times you don't get well by the meetings you don't get well by hanging out with people you get well by going through the steps with the help of the book and the help of a sponsor just for those people who may not be quite there yet or who might not be so familiar with the process mm. yeah Question 12 and our last question, what do you want your higher power, what do you want God, whatever name you give to it, the universe, love, to say to you, quote unquote, at the pearly gates? This is such a funny question. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that my higher power, my God, would say, we did it. Bloody hell, you've been hard work. <laughs> um, but you've got here clean and sober. You've lived to the max. And now it's time to relax. Very enough. Very nice. Very, very nice. Thank you so much, Dee. It has been such an absolute pleasure to have you here. I want to thank you. I feel so privileged and so grateful that you'd come and share your absolutely amazing and inspirational story of recovery. And I'd like to thank you for your honesty and for your humility and for that passion that you have for recovery and for the program. Thank you so much for being a guest on 12 Steps and 12 Questions. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure being here. Brilliant. Thank you. We've come to the end of this episode. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed it and would like other addicts and alcoholics to hear it, then please make the pesky AIs and algorithms work their 12th step. Hit like and subscribe. While this pod is based on the 12-step recovery program, it's not officially affiliated with any 12-step fellowship. 12 Steps and 12 Questions is not substance or behavior specific, it's fully self-supporting and not for profit. And you know this next bit. It's not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization or institution. It does not wish to engage in any controversy and it neither endorses nor opposes any causes.